Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Rebecca Weidmann and I am the host of this episode. For today's group discussion, I am joined by Ted Schwaber, Eva Asselmann and Chris Soto. Thank you for being here today. Could you briefly introduce yourselves, um, where you're from, and maybe also something personal? I'm Eva Asselmann, a senior researcher at Humboldt Universität in Berlin. My research focuses on personality, subjective well-being and mental health. And in particular, I'm interested in how personality develops before and after major life events, such as moving in with a partner, marriage, separation from a partner, divorce, childbirth, the start of working life or retirement. Beyond that, I'm also interested in how personality affects how we deal with challenging situations in life, such as the COVID pandemic, transition to parenthood, or major stressful or even traumatic events. Yeah, when I don't do research, I really like to go out, meet friends, for example, for dinner or drinks, discuss about uh, research, but also other topics and Yeah, I'm very excited to be here today and um, have the opportunity to talk to you during this podcast. Hey, I'm Ted Schwaba. I'm going to try out a new research introduction. So I'm just starting a postdoc. And when I was previously about to get my degree, I was studying pretty similar things to what Ava's studying. So a lot of personality development across the lifespan and then mixing in, you know, some life events research to figure out why people change how they do. But now I'm out here in Texas, and so I'm going to be looking more at the genetics of personality and psychopathology. And so I got to kind of figure out a way. So I'm going to something like I use modern statistical tools and big data sets to figure out what makes people who they are. I feel like that might be a little too vague, but trying to combine them, you know, it's, it's, it's a years long process to get your little elevator pitch going. Personal thing is. I really like music, but I've never really gotten into blues music. Like I kind of know like Eric Clapton and B.B. King and stuff. And apparently there's a ton of good blues music here down in Austin. So I'm going to make a concerted effort to go to a bunch of concerts and to finally figure it out besides, you know, the like the actual blues lingo. I kind of want to understand that. Very open to experience of you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Are you a blues fan yourself? Yeah, I, I do like blues. And I've listened to blues in, in Austin. It's definitely a good place to do it. Nice. Awesome. Chris, it's your turn. Sure. I'm Chris Soto. I'm an associate professor of psychology at Colby College, uh, which is a small liberal arts college in the U.S. And I study personality traits and social, emotional, and behavioral skills pretty broadly, uh, including their structure, their measurement, their development and their outcomes. So I study one of those things until I get bored with it after a couple of papers, and then I kind of bounce onto the next thing and rotate around. My pandemic hobby has been building Legos. Uh, I grew <laughs> up with Legos, and uh, now I have a couple of daughters who are six and nine, so I, I build with them occasionally. But once it became clear that we were going to be spending a lot of time at home <laughs> during the past year, I started to, to get into some uh, adult Lego sets, including the, you know, 4,000 yeah. brick castle that you see behind me. Nice. So how did you get interested in the field of personality and also personality development? Yeah, I started my research in clinical psychology and uh, developmental epidemiology. And uh, a couple of years ago, I was still examining how 
individual and environmental risk factors interact in the development of anxiety and depressive disorders, including also the role of life events for the onset course and outcomes of mental disorders. And with time, I became more and more curious to also study um, how these major life events and other experiences not only affect psychopathology, but also broader personality traits, such as the big five or perceived control or self-esteem. And I still like to work with uh, huge data sets, uh, not only from epidemiology, but also like uh, population-based panel studies yeah, where you can uh, investigate thousands of people. I guess there are kind of two ways that I got interested in personality psychology. There's like the regular person part and then the really nerdy academic part. <laughs> uh, the regular person part is just, I just, you know, took some personality tests in high school and college. And I noticed uh, that, you know, my scores would change over time. And it got me thinking about mm. whether and how and why my own personality might change. And then I got interested in how other people's personalities might change. And then the, the nerdy academic part is that, you know, as a, I was a psychology major in, in college and as part of my junior seminar, I was assigned to read a paper by uh, Hoste, Durad and Goldberg about the integration of the big five and circumplex approaches to personality traits. And I just found this paper that is mostly about kind of ways to visualize personality traits and kind of constellations or clusters of personality traits and how they fit together into larger patterns to be quite beautiful and interesting and uh, yeah, led to this interest in, in personality structure. The reason why I'm here is more of an accident than, than anything else. I, uh, as an undergrad, I work in a research lab that looked at how older adults you know, with functional disabilities use technology. And so it was a very qualitative and like human factors design lab. And I kept bothering everyone by asking people questions about individual differences. And in like a sample of 10 people that were interviewed about like how arthritis makes it hard for them to use their phone, you can't really study individual differences. You just gotta, you know, take people's stories as they come. And then I took a personality class and it was, it's kind of interesting because uh, my undergraduate school has quite a few personality researchers at it. But when I took the personality lecture, it was some visiting lecturer who just talked about Freud the whole time. And so that was really boring. Like it was just memorizing various Freudian terminology and missing all of like the cool stuff that I would have got if it wasn't a visiting professor. So I just kind of meandered my way around and then uh, met Dan Rozek, who's a researcher at Northwestern. And he's like, hey, you wanna be an RA for me? And then it was just kind of going from there on out. I'm like, oh, I love this stuff. Individual differences research is cool. And now I'm out here. Thank you so much. So all of you have conducted a myriad of longitudinal studies with large samples. Can you tell me something about how personality develops or temperament develops in childhood, adolescence, young, middle, late adulthood? Well, I think one just important thing to stay up front is that personality traits can and do change over time. I feel like all personality psychologists know this at this point, but Everyone I talk to who is not a personality psychologist pretty much is still just surprised to hear that at this point there's incontrovertible evidence that, uh, yeah, personality traits are not fixed, that they, they do change uh, gradually rather than sudden, um, but they can and do change across the lifespan. And as for childhood and adolescence, uh, I think things that we've learned about that recently are, first of all, that kids do have personality traits um, that kind of historically 
personality was thought of as a largely adult phenomenon, that adults uh, have personalities, but kids don't really have them. They're kind of all the same, or they might have this kind of biologically rooted temperament. Um, but it's become increasingly clear that temperament and personality are pretty much the same thing, that you can find childhood an analogs of uh, all the big five traits and of most other personality characteristics that we're interested in by the kind of early elementary school years. And then if you look at personality change in, in children and adolescents, as compared with adults, a couple of things to know are that first of all, there's a lot of personality change. So there's less rank order stability in personality traits among children and adolescents than there is among adults. And second, uh, that the kind of typical pattern of change is somewhat different for kids versus adults. So the kind of classic finding in personality development research is that most kind of young adults and into middle age, their personalities become better. They become more agreeable, more conscientious, and more emotionally stable as they get older. But with kids, that's not necessarily true. And kind of the most interesting thing that I've seen uh, is that uh, there's this kind of disruption of personality maturation where from about age 10 to age 15, so it, during the years surrounding puberty, the transition into adolescence, on average, kids become less agreeable and less conscientious, so meaner and lazier. Is that self-report or parent report? So we've seen it in both. Uh, mm. We started with kids self-reports and kids were saying, yeah, I'm getting less agreeable and less conscientious over these years. But you know, who knows if these kids are being accurate about their self-reports. So then we asked parents and we saw the same patterns. They recognized <laughs> that kids were also getting uh, less agreeable and less conscientious during this transition, which isn't you know, a huge surprise to anyone who has like, taught middle school or had teenage kids, um, but you know, it's very different from what we're used to seeing uh, in the adult personality development literature. Cool. And so what happens in young adulthood? I mean, you already said it, but what, yeah, what we can find is that people tend to mature. Usually uh, emotional stability, agreeableness and conscientiousness increase. Probably this is because young adults take on more mature roles, for example, they get married, they start a family and have kids, or they move out from their parents' house and their studies and then start working. Maybe this is why they change this way. Mm -hmm. And then middle, old adulthood? Yeah, so for middle adulthood, I think, fun, fun disclosure here, uh, we just finished up a, a meta-analysis of personality rank order stability and mean level development over the lifespan. And so it took literally the entire time I was in grad school, all six years, but a big team of people, including Brent Roberts, who did the 2006 meta-analysis and Daniel Briley, who's an absolute stats wizard and um, a bunch of people at University of Illinois. And then Vibka Blydorn, my advisor and Chris Hopwood. We all um, just took all the studies we could find on age graded personality development and uh, snaking the whole lifespan trajectory through middle age and old age, one of the things that we found was um, the previous research had a lot of very big uh, mean level increases that stayed throughout adulthood. Um, and so even in middle adulthood, as people went from age 40 to 50, they're still becoming more conscientious and more agreeable. And then now, as we have more and more data, I think the final sample for this was somewhere around 250,000 or so, that we find that people in midlife and then in old age are becoming more and more emotionally stable with time. So that's great. 
But contrary to kind of what we were thinking in previous research, the trends in agreeableness and conscientiousness, so people becoming, you know, more productive and more friendly, it doesn't seem like those traits increase all the way throughout middle adulthood. In middle adulthood, those traits are just kind of staying stable generally on average, which is kind of interesting because I think a lot of times when we're thinking about maturation, we think about all those three traits together. And it really seems like now we've got some more data in that emotional stability is still going up throughout the whole lifespan, at least as late as we can track. But then agreeableness and conscientiousness seem to be kind of just stable and, and hanging out during um, the middle years and into the beginning of older adulthood. And did you also look at extroversion in terms of social vitality and social dominance? We didn't split them up. Uh, we just kept it with extroversion, but extroversion's going down slowly and openness to experience is just starting to plummet. Okay. As people get older and older, they become less and less willing to try new things and curious about the world. And that kind of makes sense, I think. Yeah, I think it fits very well in what we found about personality maturation and relaxation at this um, idea that People might mature in young adulthood because they take on these adult roles. And for example, when you start working, then you need to get up early, be on time, do a good job, be friendly and professionally. And when you strive to meet these expectations and you adapt to all these demands, your behavior and of course also your personality might change over time. For example, you might become more conscientious then. This might probably drive the effects that we found for conscientiousness in young adulthood. And in old age, some of these behavioral expectations tend to lessen. For example, when you retire, you don't need to get up early anymore. You don't need to be on time or do a good job because you are already retired and you have more freedom and flexibilities in your everyday life. And this might again lead to changes in specific personality traits, maybe a decrease in conscientiousness. And this is what we can call personality relaxation. And what we also found in our data, because we examined how do people change when they start working and retire. And our findings were that people who started working became more extroverted, more agreeable and more conscientious, especially more conscientious over time after they had entered working life. And on the contrary, people who retired were much less conscientious after retirement, which also fits to your findings. I love the term relaxation because it really makes it sound like, ah, it's okay that people aren't getting more conscientious. Like, they don't need to. Sometimes it's also called La Dolce Vita effect because people can just lay back a bit and relax. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's also quite nice term for it. I think it makes most sense for conscientiousness. I don't know. What about agreeableness? We didn't find um, that retirement was associated with any other personality changes overall because when people retire, not everybody can relax then some people have health constraints or still other duties or they still need to work yeah life can can differ a lot when people retire and maybe this is also reason why we don't find so many mean level changes thank you i think you're pointing also into the direction there are a lot of inter-individual differences in those trajectory and i think ted could you also tell us a bit more about those differences Yeah, I think as personality psychologists who are interested in the development, there's kind of two big 
sources of clay to work with, you know, and one of them is the way that most people are changing. So you can describe the average person. But then it's also interesting to figure out the people who are not the average person. So the people who are becoming way more extroverted when they turn 70 or the people who all of a sudden are, you know, for whatever reason, they're becoming super grumpy as soon as they're in their mid 20s. And so a nice thing about personality is that we've got this average change, but we've also got a lot of people deviating from the trend. And I think that that's really fun in, from a researcher perspective, because once you've got that variation, you can say, okay, what's explaining the variation? Mm -hmm. Do we have life events that explain it? Is it just random noise? What's going on here? One of the things that us personality development researchers have really been digging into the last few years is trying to figure out how life events, so things like retirement, but then also like more gradual experiences. So like starting an exercise regimen and, you know, sticking to that and how these different things can explain perhaps why all of a sudden I turn 30 and all of a sudden, you know, I'm extremely open to experience compared to where I was before. And I think that the individual differences and change are something we can really see in our everyday life. Like if you think about, like I have a cousin who, you know, was this kind of grumpy, kind of like, oh, that's my little cousin. Then all of a sudden one time I see him at like Christmas and he's just like the most mature, sociable, like huge individual differences in change. This guy just became mature basically overnight. Mm -hmm. And I think we all have some of those stories, positive and negative, that are really fun to try to explain in our own personal lives. Yeah, thanks. What other factors could influence personality development aside from taking on new social roles or like detaching from social roles? I mean, certainly there's genetics are implicated in this stuff because thankfully people seem to be following this pattern of getting more and more mature. And it seems from the research, genetics are implicated in these individual differences and in change. But I mean, could also just even be a change in identity or changing your reputation. Yeah, the only additional thing that I would want to add in that hasn't come up yet is people's kind of subjective responses to life events. So any of your biology and your biological maturation, that's something that happens to you. Life events are often kind of intuitively thought of as stuff that happens to you and that might change you. Social roles are a bit more agentic as something that you might choose to take on or not. But then also subjective responses so that the same person can undergo the same life event, uh, like gaining or losing a job, going through a divorce or getting married, and interpret that event in very different ways. And how they interpret and respond to that event can have different implications for their subsequent development. I think one, one aspect that's also important is that not only life events uh, shape our personality, but personality also affects in what environments we select and what life events we will experience. For example, if you're very agreeable, then you are more likely to um, have a happy relationship, to have uh, less relationship distress, less conflicts with your partner, and maybe you are less likely to get uh, divorced or separate from your partner. When you are more extroverted, you probably have more friends, a larger social network, and more social support when you face any difficulties in life, and all these things interact with uh, each other over time. Could it also be that personality changes in anticipation of a life event? Like if I know that I will start a job in six months, maybe I'll already start to wake up earlier or be more conscientious. We published a couple of papers where we examined both anticipation and also socialization effects. Uh, and in our research, uh, these there were pretty few anticipation effects. Most 
uh, personality changes occurred after the event. But of course, personality can also change, for example, in anticipation for a job. Uh, I think we found that conscientiousness increased slightly before people started working, but the effects were stronger afterwards. I think all of these things make it super hard to figure out what's causing what in terms of life events and personality change. And it's one of those things where it's, it's really important to research. And I just, every time I look at a various set of findings, I'm like, okay, cool, this could make sense. And then I imagine like what the opposite findings would be like. And I'm like, I could see that too. <laughs> I think it's a very tough nut to crack that we're all trying to crack over here, especially because like you said, people are experiencing multiple life events. They're interpreting them differently depending on their pre-existing traits. The events occur differently for different people. You know, divorce could be awesome or horrible depending on, you know, the divorce. And I think at this juncture, I'm really, really not sure about where to go next. We know that events affect people, but to figure out how and when and why events affect people is just a huge next question. And uh, I'm wondering if you guys have any ideas about where to go forwards. I think maybe looking at more perceptions of life events might help a little bit. Yeah, I've had the same experience as, as Ted, where, you know, I guess, I guess I'm the oldest in the group. So when, when uh, people really started looking at um, longitudinal relations between uh, life events and, and personality change, you know, especially in terms of the big five, the kind of natural first place to start was the assumption that there would be kinds of events that would have similar effects on people, that you would get married and it would change most people's personality traits in a particular way, or you would have a kid and that would change your personality traits in a similar way. Yeah, I think it's important to acknowledge that just those kinds of effects are very inconsistent from study to study. Sometimes there's more personality change before the event. Sometimes there's more personality change after the event. Sometimes it seems like a particular kind of event has positive effects on people. Sometimes it seems like it has negative effects on people. And yeah, as kind of a next step, that's what's led me to uh, be thinking about, yeah, these kind of indiv individual differences and in how people respond to events. Because it doesn't seem at this point like particular kind of events are gonna have big main effects on personality development, that there has to be something more complex going on. And so it's interesting to figure that out, but of course it's also harder to figure that out. You probably also need to observe people in their everyday life, not only ask any question or abstract, but to really join them in their everyday lives, see what, what they are doing, what everyday life activities they conduct, how these activities change over time, and then find any explanations for specific personality changes. I do think that we are doing a few things really well, though, with this. And the <laughs> biggest thing is that all of these like results that aren't replicating across studies I don't think it's at all because of like people selectively reporting results or like hiding things and file drawing other things. The nice thing about this research is I think most of it gets published because it's not like, oh, you didn't find agreeableness changes. We can't publish your paper. And so thankfully, this problem is very much out in the open. You know, you look at one paper, they got measurements two years apart and people are becoming more agreeable. You look at another paper, it's in a sample from 45 years ago and people are becoming less agreeable. And thankfully, all that information is there so we can all synthesize it and say, we know that we don't know, <laughs> instead of some people falsely believing, well, there's five studies that say this, so it's totally this, and then having to debunk that, I think. I would also like to talk about not what predicts or is associated with personality development, 
but what personality predicts and how important personality is for different life domains. I found a quote from 1976 by Seacrest. And it says, most research in personality is inconsequential, trivial, and pointless, even if it is well done. So what are your thoughts about this quote? Do you think our field is different now? So I think there are ways that that quote is incorrect and ways that it's correct. I think it's incorrect in that, compared with the 1970s, there is now much stronger evidence that personality traits do predict a broad range of consequential life outcomes. And there's evidence that those trade outcome associations replicate pretty consistently and that they generalize pretty well between men and women, between younger and older adults, and between members of different social cultural groups. I think the way that the quote is correct is that most reliable trait outcome associations are pretty intuitive rather than being very surprising. You know, if I told you that more emotionally stable people tend to be happier with their lives, like that probably wouldn't come as a huge surprise. If I told you that more extroverted people tend to attain a higher social status, you know, that's not shocking. Solid but boring is a criticism that's often leveled against personality research. And I'm willing to live with that. <laughs> I'm okay with being a solid and boring scientist. I would say that per definition, personality is how you think, feel, and behave in everyday life. So it's kind of everything of your life because there's not much more to add. So I think personality is maybe one of the most important things in life. Yeah, even if personality was entirely inconsequential, like we're in this alternate universe where everything that happens to you is chance. I'd make the argument that, well, we're people, we should understand individual differences in people, even if they don't matter, simply just to describe and understand people. We have sort of an obligation to do that and we're sort of intrinsically interested in it because it's us. And so it's very nice that personality seems to be quite consequential. And there's also these little nuances that make it fun to study. Figuring out lifespan trends and figuring out what predicts what and which traits matter in which domains. And so that kind of keeps it a little interesting. But I think even at a basic level, just describing people at the most basic level is just a worthwhile endeavor. So what are the uh, life outcomes that are predicted by personality? I mean, to summarize briefly, Extroversion and agreeableness are the strongest predictors of social outcomes. Extroverts tend to attain higher social status than introverts do. Uh, more agreeable individuals tend to have more uh, satisfying close relationships and are just kind of generally better liked by their peers. Conscientiousness is the most consistent predictor of academic achievement and job performance, as well as physical health. Openness to experience, I mean, Ted's the real expert here, uh, but you know, in general, it predicts uh, interest in and success in the arts and the sciences, as well as holding more uh, liberal political attitudes, especially on social issues. Uh, and then finally, emotional stability versus neuroticism is the strongest predictor of people's subjective well-being or happiness, as opposed to ill-being and psychopathology. So more emotionally stable people tend to be happier with their lives. High levels of neuroticism are a risk factor for various forms of psychopathology, especially clinical anxiety and depression. And how big are those effects? If you look at relations of personality traits to certain more psychological outcomes, you get pretty large effect sizes. You know, for example, the correlations between um, emotional stability versus neuroticism and various indices of subjective well-being are often, you know, correlations in the 40s or 50s, which are quite strong. Whereas if you're trying to predict more concrete outcomes, 
like say GPA or uh, job performance, you tend to end up with more modest effect sizes, correlations often in the teens or, or into the 20s. And do, because there are small effect sizes, are they like negligible? I don't think they're at all negligible. I think an interesting historical trend in psychology as a whole, I think, I hope, definitely in personality psychology, is that our standards for judging effect size have gotten a lot more reasonable, I would say, over time, where in the 1960s, 1970s, people were really disappointed if they found a correlation of 0.20 or 0.30 between a personality trait and a particular behavior or life outcome. Uh, after decades of doing this stuff and trying to predict life outcomes, not just from personality traits, but from all kinds of other things too, I think there's greater recognition that life outcomes are just complex and multiply determined, influenced by all kinds of different things. And so if you're only looking at one predictor, whether that's a personality trait or IQ or socioeconomic status or pretty much anything else you can think of, kind of the best you're going to do with one predictor is a correlation of around 0.10 or 0.20. Uh, so yeah, I feel pretty comfortable with those effect sizes. I have more confidence in those effect sizes. These days, if I end up with a, a trade outcome correlation that's like 0.50 in one study, I'm like, there's no way if someone else does that study, they're going to find a 0.50 correlation. I also think that it's really nice that those correlations aren't higher. I always think about like these dystopic police states where it's like, we know that you are scoring high on extroversion and low on agreeableness. And so we can pinpoint in 20 years, you're going to do a crime. We're going to lock you up. And like, thankfully, humans are so complex that we can't do that. And so things like, you know, preemptively arresting people for crimes they haven't committed or just like weird determinism of, hey, this person's very uh, neurotic. They're never going to have a successful relationship. Thankfully, those things aren't true. You know, you can be really anxious and in a loving, wonderful relationship. And so I think it's it's very good that we don't have correlations of 0.8 and 0.9 like biologists do when they're like moving their cells around, because thankfully the world's a lot more complex than a Petri dish that's completely experimentally controlled. And it depends on the context. For example, higher extroversion is not always better. I think one important or interesting finding is that extroversion normally is associated with higher well-being and better health. But during the pandemic, a couple of studies found that lower extroversion was associated with better well-being, which also makes sense because when you can't go out and you have to be by your own, then it's probably more favorable to be more introverted. So it's not in every situation um, the same effects. The last like content related question. So we talked, I think, almost exclusively about big five traits. And there, of course, are a lot of other personality characteristics other than the big five. And so, Chris, you have recently published a paper on skills. Could you talk a little bit what we know about skills and maybe also what do we know about their development? If I can give a bit of backstory here, the motivation for this project on social, emotional, and behavioral skills is that interest in personality traits has really grown over the past couple of decades beyond personality psychology. Folks like economists, educators, and policymakers have, have become more interested in personality because they've noticed that personality traits do in fact predict important life outcomes that they're interested in. And so ideally, a lot of these folks would like to design and implement interventions that would promote positive personality development and therefore promote 
positive life outcomes, but you know, personality traits, kind of intuitively, it seems like that might not be the best way to go about that uh, because traits are hard to change and they're just very personal. It just feels kind of icky to say like, we're gonna design an intervention that's gonna turn introverted kids into extroverted kids. Uh, everyone, you know, a lot of people are like, hey, keep your hands off of my personality, that, that is mine. So in thinking about how to kind of address that difficulty, we feel like a lot of things that are often thought of as personality traits can be pretty easily reconceptualized as social, emotional, or behavioral skills, as functional capacities that people use to accomplish things in their lives, you know, maintain the relationships, regulate their emotions, manage their goals, and learn from their experiences, where the real conceptual distinction here is that a trait is uh, how someone tends to behave, averaged across a bunch of different situations, whereas a skill, as we define it, is more like how someone is capable of behaving when a particular situation calls for it, a kind of social or behavioral or emotional tool that they have, have in their toolbox that they can bust out when they need it, but they don't have to do it all the time. And so we think, at least intuitively, that these kinds of skills uh, might be at least as important as traits are for predicting success in life, and that they also might be easier to change than traits. Because if you have a skill, hopefully you can improve it through practice uh, and effort. So I'm starting to investigate these ideas uh, in collaboration with uh, Brent Roberts and Chris Napolitano and some other folks, but we're just getting started on that work. So we've developed and validated a measure of these skills uh, that we call the BESI, and now we're gonna use it to uh, look at the development outcomes and interventions related to skills. Um, but you know, we're really just getting started. <laughs> we just have the measure because you've got to start with the measurement piece. You can't study something until you can measure it. So we have ideas about the development uh, and interventions, but we don't have uh, hard evidence yet. So you're gonna have to ask me again in, in five or 10 years. Awesome, thanks so much. So at the end of this discussion, uh, I would like to ask you some general questions about being a researcher. And so judging from all of your research outputs, you're all very productive researchers. So what are your productivity hacks? What are your best tips on being a productive researcher? Focus on the most important things uh, that are most fun for you. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think taking a lot of breaks is important. I've seen so many people that are just like, well, if I just sit at my computer for four hours, this will magically work. And it never does. And so I'm very much of the mindset, you know, take as many breaks as you need and then just work productively when you're not taking a break. And drinking coffee helps. <laughs> if you really need to get something done, drink a cup of coffee, take a nap, wake up 20 minutes after. You guys heard of the caffeine nap? It takes about 20 to 30 minutes to uh, like have the caffeine like enter your system. And so if you're tired, it's really good to like drink a cup of coffee and then take a nap for 20 minutes. And then when you wake up, you'll be super nice and alert. I have a, a, a couple of things. One is more micro, one is more macro. The, the micro thing is to practice overestimating how long it's going to take you to do things. I think most people chronically underestimate how long it's going to take to do things because you kind of imagine the most how long would it take if everything went smoothly? Um, but then of course, often things don't go smoothly. So you end up underestimating time, then you're at risk of overcommitting yourself, saying that you're gonna get more done than you can possibly do, and then you end up stressed and overwhelmed. So it's taken decades, but I, I think I've gotten to the point where I can now like actually slightly overestimate how long things are gonna take. 
So then I rarely find myself in a situation where I'm just like panicked at the last minute. Like I promise this by tomorrow and I just can't do it. And of course, if you like under promise, then people are, are pleasantly surprised when you deliver something earlier than you say where you were going to do it. So that's, that's a nice benefit too. So that's the more micro thing. And then as the more macro thing. So yeah, I feel like as the old person in the conversation, I was like, oh man, they're going to expect me to like say something wise here. But it's actually very similar to what, to what Ava said of in thinking about ways to spend your time, one of the nice things, but also the potentially challenged things about academic life is that there are many different things you could do. There are many different kinds of commitments you could make, many different ways you could spend your time. So I think it is worthwhile occasionally thinking about, you know, what are the things that you enjoy? What are the things that you're particularly good at that like other scientists are maybe not as, not as good at? And just what are the kinds of things that you can do that other people seem to find useful or interesting? And if you can spend most of your time doing stuff that maybe isn't meeting all of those three things simultaneously, but like sometimes you're doing stuff just because you like it, sometimes you're doing it because it makes you feel like you're good at your job, and sometimes you're doing it because you, you feel like you're being use, useful to other people, and you spend as little time as possible doing stuff that doesn't fit any of those things, uh, then I think that can really help just in terms of motivation and just enjoying your job and making the best of it. Thanks. Thank you so much for being in the podcast and sharing all your research and your ideas and uh, also your hacks. Thank you, Rebecca. Rebecca. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, this cool. is a really fun conversation. Tune in next month for an interview with Chessie Sun and a new summary of VJP's latest articles. Thank you for listening.